Good morning, America. Oh, I'm sorry. That's my old job. Uh, good, good day, bookcasers. Or good evening, depending on when you're listening. I'm Charlie Gibson. Kate, do you think people will mind being called bookcasers? Oh, I hope not. I hope we have a loyal army that's willing to um, call themselves bookcasers. I think that's terrific. So I'm really excited about today's show because, well, I, I get really excited about all of our shows, but this is one of those writers that for me was a revelation, although she probably shouldn't have been. Julie Otsuka has written three books, three beautiful books, When the Emperor Was Divine, Buddha in the Attic and the Swimmers, which is her most recent, which is the first one that I picked up. Mitchell Kaplan recommended her, who's our friend who runs books and books in Florida. I read it in, I think, one night. And I think I may even have sent you a picture of the cover of the book in the middle of the night saying, read this, read this, read this, read this. After I read it, I ran out and I got her other two books and I read them. (laughs) Her prose is very spare. And I think you were checking just today, Kate, I think each of her books is under 200 pages. And when you read her books, it's almost, she writes in a very idiosyncratic way. It's almost like she's making lists. And I'm going to give you an example in a minute, and she'll give you an example when we talk to her. But it it could be poetry. I mean, each sentence is so distinct and so spare, as I say, that you could put them line by line by line and make them poetry. As I say, they are lists, but in a very very beautiful way, I think. You really get the sense that her books aren't just written, they're crafted. Mm. I get this picture of her just writing a whole bunch of stuff and then throwing out half of it after she (laughs) reads it to herself and reads it to herself and reads it to herself and reads it to herself. I mean, these books are just beautiful. And I think the language choices she makes come across as very thoughtful. I think she throws out more than half because she really boils it down to an essence. When I say lists, I don't mean that disparagingly. It's not like bullet points. And I'm going to read you a little part of it in just a second. But to give you an outline of the novel, it's about a group of people who come to an indoor pool, some every day, some once a week, twice a week, whatever, and they sort of lose themselves in the pool. One of them, you find as you go on in the book, becomes the subject or the object of the last half of the book. Alice is descending into dementia. And the last, as I say, half the book, a little bit more than half, is about her dementia. And boy, does she write about it well. I think we've all known people who have suffered from dementia or Alzheimer's. And Julie Otsuka really, really understands it. She really, I mean, she wrote about it in a way that I, I don't know. I mean, if you loosely sort of describe it, the first part of the book is about the pool. The second part of the book, is about sort of what Alice remembers and what she doesn't. The third part of the book is just a memory care center making a pitch to you, the reader, telling you what the memory care center is going to be like and what the process of dementia is going to be like. And the fourth part, I don't want to give away, but the way that she breaks it down and the humanity that she brings to the way that she writes about dementia is really I mean, it's it's heart wrenching, and and what's the word I'm looking for? Extremely empathetic. Is that the word I'm looking for? Oh, I think absolutely so. Compassionate. That's the word I'm looking for. A compassionate and empathetic, both to the both to Alice and to some extent to the people who care for her in the mm-hmm. memory care center. I, when I say this, let me give you an example. This is writing about the pool, which, as I say, is the first forty percent of the book. Most days at the pool, we are able to leave our troubles on land behind. Failed painters become elegant breaststrokers. 
Untenured professors slice shark-like through the water with breathtaking speed. The newly divorced HR manager grabs a faded red styrofoam board and kicks with impunity. The downsized admin floats otter-like on his back as he stares up at the clouds on the painted pale blue ceiling, thinking for the first time all day long of nothing. Let it go. Worriers, stop worrying. Bereaved widows cease to grieve. Out-of-work actors, unable to get traction above ground, glide effortlessly down the fast lane. In their element, at last, I've arrived. And for a brief interlude, we are at home in the world. Bad moods lift, ticks disappear, memories reawaken, migraines dissolve, and slowly, slowly, the chatter in our minds begins to subside as stroke after stroke, length after length, we swim. Now, that's just essentially a list of sentences, and yet it I, I just think it's lyrical. It's just extremely evocative. Like the way she, I mean, she was trained as a painter, and I don't know how she is as a painter, but she paints with words. And hmm. I just love the image of a human resources manager grabbing a foam board and kicking with impunity. <laughs> I love picturing my old human resources managers doing that. I just, Julie Otsuka was a revelation to me, and her other two books also really worth a read. She's an incredible writer, and we love talking to her. We did indeed. And so here is our conversation with Julie Otsuka. Julie Otsuka, it's so great to have you in the bookcase. I want to start with The Swimmers. It's broken into four different parts. The first part is very much about a community pool. I want you to talk a little bit about that because it sets the scene for our audience and talk a little bit about what appears in the pool and what that symbolizes and how it launches the rest of the book. So it's an underground pool in an unnamed town somewhere in California. And it really is a haven of sorts for all sorts of different members of the local community who go there just to swim and to find a little bit of peace in their daily life. And all sorts of different people go there. What I love about the idea of this pool in particular is that nobody knows who anybody else is, quote unquote, above ground out of the pool. And the pool is this great equalizing space. Somebody could be, you know, an astrophysicist above ground or a janitor. It doesn't really matter. All that matters in the pool is whether you are in the fast, medium or slow lane. So it's a real haven. Then at a certain point, a crack appears, which is a very disrupting, very alarming. People are not sure what it means in the very beginning. I've been asked so many questions about that crack. Is it a metaphor for the pandemic? Is it a metaphor for what is going on inside of the main character's brain? It could be actually many things. I love that it can be read many different ways. I think that's really the beauty of writing. But I really wrote it first just as a little crack that appears there at the bottom of the pool. And then I just let it play out over the course of this very, very long chapter to see what people would do. And I, and I actually wrote that chapter before the onset of the pandemic. So I didn't know that it would be read in that particular light. The crack appears in the bottom of the pool. I love the way they pronounce the word in the play, The Book of Mormon. It's a metaphor. It's a metaphor. <laughs> um, and, and it is obviously a metaphor, but uh, of course, and I'm sure you've been asked what in your mind it is a metaphor for, because the second half, really the second two thirds of the book, is a searing description of Alice, your main protagonist, descending into dementia. So I took it as a metaphor for the fissures that appears in her brain, but I don't know what you were thinking about as you wrote it. 
You know, I am a very literal thinker. So initially it was not a metaphor for anything. Although I think in some sense, I knew it was the beginning of the end of this sort of idyllic life in the pool for all of these people. That's all it was. And what's really interesting when you write is you often find that there are parallels with things in real life that you had no knowledge of while you were writing. And I learned after the novel came out that there's something called a Sylvian Fisher, which appears in the brains. Well, it's in all brains, but in the brains of people who have Pick's disease, which is what this character Alice suffers from. It's her particular form of dementia. The Sylvian Fisher is enlarged. And I thought, oh, that's just perfect <laughs> for what I was writing in that chapter. But really, it's, it was just a crack in my mind. That, that's all it was initially. Because in the book, the first two chapters are about the pool, as you write a very democratizing thing in that everybody is equal in the pool. And then the second part is about the fissures or the cracks that appear. And then it goes away. The pool is no longer there. And it's all about Alice and her dementia. And I kept thinking, is she going to go back to the pool? No, she leaves it and she leaves it for, it has to be for a reason, I kept thinking. True? She can never go back. I mean, that world is gone for her. In a way, I wanted to show, before we see Alice really in the depths of her dementia, I wanted to show the world from which she came, the world in which she was a thriving member. And in that pool, you know, she knew many of those swimmers, her fellow swimmers for 20, 30 years. So it was a place that she was, where she was happy. And I just want to show the world before, before she began to suffer from her dementia. Well, I'm interested in the order of your writing, in your process, I mean, how did it start for you? Did it start with Alice? Did it start with the daughter? And then the pool became a way to get into that? Did the pool come first? I mean, how did that work? I had sketched out just a few scenes that were set in an underground pool while I was finishing, and probably in the middle of writing my last novel, The Buddha in the Attic. And then I just shoved them in a drawer and I didn't think about them for a long time, for literally for years. And then I had been asked by Selected Shorts at Symphony Space if I would write a story. So I had this story kicking around in my head for years, which is now Diem Perditi, which is that middle chapter in the novel. So I wrote that just in a few months, which for me is very, very fast. I'm a very slow writer, but I took off a few months from finishing up my last novel and I wrote that short story. And I thought it was just a standalone. I didn't know it would end up being sort of the middle still point of my next novel. And when I finished The Buddha in the Attic, I really had no idea what I would write next, but I pulled out those scenes set in the pool. And I just, I just thought this is such a great idea just to write about this world. And I didn't know where it was going to go. So that was really my starting point. I had these two pieces. I had this complete short story, Diem Perditi. And then I had a very sketchy beginning of life in this underground pool. I didn't know how I would connect the two pieces. So initially, Alice actually was not a member of that pool. It was only later that I thought, oh, I could drop her in. That's how I would connect those two parts. Oh, interesting. Interesting. So there was an Alice and there was a pool and mm -hmm. you had to bring them together. Correct. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Okay. I love that you can begin reading a novel and have no idea where it's going to go. When the ideal reader opens my book... They're just submerged in this pool, right? And I also love that people don't even realize often until the end of the second chapter that Alice is even there. She's barely there. She's very peripheral. She's just one of many, many swimmers at this neighborhood pool, right? But then when they, I, I love, 
I think sudden surprises in a novel. So there is this sudden twist, which I'm now giving away, but halfway through the novel and we suddenly realize, oh, this is Alice's story when she suddenly is above ground and we see her there in her new life. But if you go back and you look at the very first paragraph of the first chapter, she's there from the very beginning. But I think I wanted this story Hmm. not to be so obvious in the beginning for the reader. And I love radical shifts as a reader. So that's something that I wanted to provide the reader with as a writer. It's funny, in some translations, foreign translations, they wanted to drop the name Alice into the title. And I said, no, I, because it's, a, it's just a dead giveaway. I, I don't mm. want the reader to know initially that it's going to end up being her story. You write very lyrically and you write in lists. I'm fascinated by the technique. As you do it in many parts, it's very short sentences and it's lists and lists and lists of various things. And I began to think this could be a poem that each line, each sentence of the list as you go along, it could be in poetic form. But I'm curious as to why you write that way and how you came to that style. It was never my aspiration to be a list maker. (laughs) Um, And it's something that I was not even aware of doing, actually, as I was writing until it was brought to my attention by many reviewers. (laughs) I think it's something that my brain must do. I'm very obsessed with details. I think that's just how my mind works. I'm also, I mean, what you said about poetry, I think very much in terms of the rhythm of the language, it's very, very important to me. Just the sound, the rhythm of the sentences, the cadence of the sentences is something I'm constantly paying attention to as I'm writing. I'm interested in that then. How do you test the lyricism? Do you read it aloud to somebody? Do you read it aloud to yourself? How do you know that you're hitting those marks? And that you have the meter. You have the meter Mm -hmm. that you want. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it's something really innate. I don't even know why I have that. When I was writing my last novel, I read it aloud to myself as I was writing the book. But then this book, which actually took me longer, I felt like, I was tricking myself into thinking I was writing by just spending time reading aloud. I would just read more quickly and then just listen to the language in my head, which seemed to be fine. I don't know why I pay attention to sound. It's I, I can't really say why. I mean, I, I took music lessons as a child, maybe that it's, but it's just something innate that I do without even realizing that I'm doing it, actually. I think the best way to illustrate this, Kate, would be if you could read us a section and we would get a sense of how that meter works. The passage we were interested in having you read, the third chapter which is my favorite chapter of this book, which is essentially a long pitch from a memory care clinic to the reader talking about the rules of what the memory care clinic is and what the process is going to be. Other things we will not do. We will not let you take the easy way out or turn your face prematurely toward the wall. You must stay on the path until the very end. We will not congratulate you for ordinary everyday accomplishments, or speak to you in an unnaturally cheerful tone of voice. Rumors to the contrary, we will not give up on you. We will provide you with a stimulating but not overly demanding environment in which you can flourish and thrive. No more masking or fake nods of the head as you struggle to work your way through the name-face conundrum. Abby, Betty, Clara, no more mirroring. How are you? How are you? No more notes to self, taped up all over the house. Socks first, then shoes. No more racking your brain for the right word when a good enough word will do. Can they tell? They can. At Bella Vista, you can say goodbye to those yellow post-it notes in your bag of monomic tricks. And for the first time since the onset of your symptoms, you can let down your guard and feel at home among your own. 
Because here at Bella Vista, everyone knows. It's a really beautiful paragraph. And it shows that, you know, these people sometimes are ridiculed for not taking good care of their patients. And you have one line that says, understand that these people are being paid the lowest possible wage to love you. And indeed, I found that true. My best friend descended into, into uh, well, just went away. And you couldn't have written it so searingly unless somebody in your life had gone through this. Who? I watched my mother for, uh, I think, t- probably around 20 years, just her long, slow descent into her dementia. It was just heartbreaking. And it, it's so hard, I think, initially for the family to understand what's going on because it, things can happen very, very slowly. And you don't even realize, especially when you're in frequent touch with somebody, that they're beginning to decline. But I did draw a lot on my personal experience of watching my mother. So the wife of my good friend who died, who went through so many tough years with her husband, who, as I say, was somebody I loved. Should she read this? Um, you know, I don't know. It depends on who she is and whether or not she wants to relive what she just went through. It might be very painful. It might be something that she doesn't want to look at at all. I'm not, I'm not really sure. I hope that I, I wrote it with a lot of heart as well and that it's not just about the pain. Oh, you wrote with a lot of compassion. thought the compassion, again, that you showed memory centers. A lot of compassion. Which can easily come across as one-dimensionally depressing, but the idea that there was hope and that there is an incredible relaxation and letting down of the guard that can happen in those homes, the relief that can happen, was also, I thought, beautifully done. The last time I was with my friend, before he went into a memory care unit, it was so obvious how hard he was trying, how hard he had to work to try to stay with the conversation. And he was making every effort. And then when he went there, as I think you so well described, he could relax. He didn't have to try. As you just said, there, everyone knew. And it was so much, I thought, a relief for him that he could just be the way he was at that point. And so I thought that was so well said that there in the clinic, your mom could relax some. Was that true? I don't think it was, um, but it's very, oh. it's very good to hear um, because I think that I, I, I felt very, just so guilty about putting my mother into that facility. And she was constantly asking, when can I come home? So I actually have never heard what you just described and it, it makes me feel better, which doesn't really matter how I feel. I think what matters is how that person feels. And if your friend felt a great sense of relief at just letting down the facade of being a functional person who can communicate in the ordinary world, that in a way is it's a very relieving thing for me to hear personally. But I don't think that was my mother's experience. I want to ask a little bit about the canon of your work. One of the things that blows me away, especially considering the fact that I'm a huge Stephen King fan and John Irving fan who are known for that kind of book, <laughs> not that kind of book. Your books, all less than 200 pages, very streamlined lyricism. And so what I'm wondering is, do you write a big book and then throw half of it away? Like, do you, I mean, how do you streamline your words so much so that they're so sparing, but the words that you use are so important? 
I'm working right now on a 4,000 word piece and I've got a couple hundred pages, you know, in the file. <laughs> um, and, you know, most of them will, you know, almost everything I write just goes out the window. I mean, that, <laughs> for me, that's just, I, it takes me, I will go over a paragraph just again and again and again. And if it's not serving the purpose of the narrative, ultimately, even if it's a very, you know, perfect exquisitely refined paragraph, it's out. Um, so I'm not precious. I try to get rid of anything that's unnecessary to the, I guess, to the narrative. Most of what I write, nothing comes out right the first time. Usually the first draft of any scene is just a mess. So maybe I'm just a slower and less accurate thinker. <laughs> <laughs> how do you know it's vital? Like, how do you know I can lose this, but I need to keep this? How do you know what's the most vital to the story that you have to keep it? Again, that's very intuitive. I don't even know how I know. I just know if something sounds right. And I know once I have a string of scenes, if something is popping, it just doesn't seem right, doesn't fit in with the others. And I guess that's just how I know. I, but the answer is, I don't, I don't know. I just do it. <laughs> I don't really know how. I don't outline or anything. It's just it, if it feels right, you know, I keep it in. If, it, if I know it feels wrong, it's just, it's out. But as we said, when you boil it down to a core, it becomes lists. And that sounds so pedestrian, but it's not the way you do it and the way you put it in meter and you put it in such a lyrical way. Julie Otsuka, thank you so much for being a part of the bookcase. I loved The Swimmers. I loved then going back and reading your other two works. Listeners, if you haven't read Julie Otsuka, go, 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 run, do not walk. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. We've got the exclusive view behind the table. Every day, right after the show, while the topics are still hot, the ladies go deeper into the moments that make the view the view. The View's Behind the Table podcast. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. The first ever criminal trial of a former president is underway in Manhattan. It's one of potentially four trials facing former President Trump as he makes his third bid for the White House. What do voters think about his culpability, and would a guilty verdict make a difference in the election? I'm Galen Druk, and every Monday and Thursday on the 538 Politics podcast, we break down the latest news from the campaign trail. We sort through the noise and zoom in on what really matters, using data and research as we go. That's 538 Politics every Monday and Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. Rapid fire questions for Julie Otsuka. Is there an author you'll read no matter what they've written? Rachel Cusk. Why? I think she's brilliant. I love her language. I love her sentences. In particular, I love the Outline Trilogy, which she wrote several years ago. And I think she's doing something very new and novel with the narrative form. If I wasn't a writer, I would be... Well, I did used to be a painter. That was my first love. Um, so I... I was I painted all throughout my 20s before I even began to write. So I probably would go back to painting. Most influential book in your life? I would say Ernest Hemingway, 
well, it's kind of cheating, but but all of his short stories. I had not read a lot of him until I was in my 30s. And then once I began reading Hemingway, I just thought, again, it was about the language, just the cadence of his sentences and how he very, especially the Nick Adams stories, you know, he's just referring very indirectly to the trauma that Nick has been, been through during World War One, And I just, I love saying less as a way of saying more. And I love his sort of melancholic humor. Um, so I think it would it would be Hemingway and his short stories. The last question is, we stole it from Stephen Colbert, but we think it's very illustrative. Mm-hmm. In five words, what would you like the rest of your life to be? To continue to write. So as I say, we came late to Julie Otsuka. It was Mitchell Kaplan who put us on to her and recommended her book last Christmas. And so a year after it came out, we read it. And as I say, I recommend it to everybody. Oh, yeah. It's a question of whether somebody who has had a relative or whatever descend into dementia, whether it'll be a good read for them, cathartic, or whether it'll be painful. I got the sense that writing this book was cathartic to her. When you talked about your experience uh, with Bob and she said, I'm so glad that when he finally went into care that it was of comfort to him because that was not my experience. So I get the sense that writing the book was cathartic for her as a daughter because any caregiver would have mixed feelings, no matter how wonderful the memory care center is, would have mixed feelings about putting a parent there. I think it's interesting that the first thing that she wrote of this book was the chapter DM per DD. That's DM, the Latin per DD, P-E-R-D-I-D-I. I looked it up and it means I have lost the day, which I thought was, I don't know, that's probably the first thing you notice when it starts to go is that you've lost a day. And I thought that was, to me, it's the most poignant chapter. And the fact that it was the first thing she wrote certainly indicated to me that this was how she was processing her feelings. And as I mentioned just recently, I lost a very, very close friend who went through this. I therefore looked at it as in a very personal way. And I thought the book was was really beautiful. Our bookstore this week is The Book Loft. It's in Amelia Island, Florida. Sue Nelson owns the store, and we talk to her. We are talking to Sue Nelson, who is the owner of the Book Loft. But I'm not sure where it is, because you have a Jacksonville phone number. It says you're in Amelia Island, but in Fernandana Beach. So I'm not sure exactly how I locate you. Well, we are about an hour north of Jacksonville on an island called Amelia Island. And within Amelia is the town of Fernandina Beach. So I hope that helps you with the geography. One of the things I've noticed about island communities, they're very tight-knit. They're often very passionate about where they came from. I get that sense from you. And one of the things I love about your website is your emphasis on local literature and local authors. Can you talk a little bit about how you established that and who some of your favorite local authors are? Yes, we do a lot of work with the uh, local authors. We do a lot of book signings. We have a really a nice cover out in the front of our store so people will sit out there at tables for a couple of hours and sign books and chat with customers. Your website describes the book loft as an old-fashioned bookstore. What do you mean by that? By old-fashioned, I mean that when you actually physically walk into the store, it's very charming. It's woody, and it's a very, very comfortable situation. But also, 
There are a lot of people here who are grandmas, and the grandmas read to their grandchildren, and they read old, older books, some, you know, that they read when the children were young. So we try to carry new books and old books that you don't always see in every other store. Well, how did you end up in the book business? What hooked you? That's an interesting question because my husband and I used to come to Amelia Island to vacation and he lost his job. So he came back down here and opened the book lot. And I didn't follow him for a while because I had other commitments. And so really it was his bookstore. I was a financial advisor, but he got very sick and died about 12 years ago. And when he passed away, I took over the store hoping it would work out, and it's just exploded. Exploded? (laughs) Is that due to your business acumen? It is. I tell myself that every day. (laughs) (laughs) Sure it is. No, I think it's a combination. We've just taken it to new heights, and it's really been fun. What have been some of your favorite books of the last year? What were some of your favorite books of 2022? Well, in 2022, I have to tell you that we love John Grisham's Camino Island series because it's really about Amelia Island, and he's such a famous author that he's brought a lot of business to the store. He stops in when he's here, and he has a home here. So that's been great. And the other person that I've worked with a lot is Jacques Pepin, because Jacques um, likes to play petanque, and um, we have a huge petanque festival here every year in the fall. So he comes down and when he comes, he does some special events with me. So it's really been fun to do that. As far as intellectual books go, I think one of my very favorites was Amar Tolls, the, you know, the gentleman in Moscow. And one of the things that's cited on your website is that you have books on the pirate history of Amelia Island. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about that. That's really fun. It's really fun. We, at one point in the history, were ruled by pirates. It wasn't a very long period, but we were ruled by pirates. It was a slave trade here, and um, there was pirates. There was We've had it all. Susan Nelson, thank you so very much for talking with us today. We You're really, welcome. really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. The Book Loft on Center Street in Fernandana Beach. Thank you so much, Susan. Take care. Bye-bye. You're welcome. Sue Nelson of the Book Loft in Amelia Island, Florida. It's an amazing looking store. A moment interrupting just for a shameless plug. You're definitely going to want to follow us at ABC Audio on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We have a master book list that gets updated every week with all of the books we talk about, plus all sorts of amazing things bookcase. So you're definitely going to want to get on and follow us there. You're right. It is a shameless plug. (laughs) We're not going to tell you the names of the folks who make this broadcast great. And afterwards, a coda from Julie Otsuka. Bookcase with Kate and Charlie Gibson is a production of ABC Audio. It's produced by David Canada in conjunction with Surecam Productions. Brenda Salinas-Baker is our senior producer and Laura Mayer is our executive producer. We give special thanks to Josh Cohan, Elizabeth Russo, Nania McLean, and Cameron Chertavian. You know, when I read, I often, when I begin each book, in the back of my mind, I'm often, I, I think I'm often thinking, this book will change my life. And that's the way I, I think I open any book, any novel, just with the great hope that it will really affect and perhaps change me in some way. Well, the swimmers changed me. Thank you so much. Thank you, Kate. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Charlie.